Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. This is my weekly playground with the Western Standard where I'll rant, rave, turn your ear, talk about issues for a period of time and, you know, solve some of the world's problems. I am, as the show name would imply, Corey Morgan. So thanks for tuning in with us today, guys. And for those who are tuning in live, again, I appreciate it. I like that live audience thing going on. I see Paradoxy and Bob commenting already. Uh, send those comments, send those ideas. I don't read them all out necessarily on the air, but I do see them all. And it helps me. It helps prompt me along. I learn a lot of things on this show when I see some of those com comments and uh, interaction and things going back and forth discuss things with each other i've seen that in the comment scroll as well lots of times there's e sharp and debbie mckenzie just keep things civil of course that's the important thing we got lots of time to fight other places other times that's what the internet's all about but we don't necessarily need to do it on here so yeah i've got a good one coming up i got a guest in a little while he's the executive director of the indigenous resource network his name is john desjardins he's a, a businessman and, and their site's really good and i like their positive messaging. I'm really looking forward to talking to him and their campaign, which is called Resource Development is Reconciliation. Quite different than uh, what we typically have been hearing about uh, what is or isn't reconciliation and things such as that. So that'll be a good chat as well. Lots of news. I'll check in with Dave uh, in a little while and see what's going on. Karen Mitchell saying happy news today. Uh, I don't know. There's all kinds of news going on. You can decide whether it's happy or not. I'm going to start with my opening monologue on something that's not terribly controversial i want to ask why aren't the unvaccinated dying yeah i know a little bit loaded but it's worth asking you know in the last six months 94 percent of canadians didn't bother getting covid 19 boosters now remember we've been told we've been told over and over we have to get these boosters every six months or this is coming back well only six percent of canadians uh, have bothered to do that now, with a, a campaign of coercion using fear, economic duress, and social ostracization, Canada did manage to twist the arms of Canadians hard enough to, to get 80% of the population to get two doses of the vaccine. The number of people taking part, though, in the lifetime of booster shots recommended by many medical experts who often coincidentally are in the pharmaceutical industry, has dropped pretty dramatically. Now, in response to this, we're starting to see a push again from authorities though, to try and coax the citizens into getting yet another injection this fall. You know, with hindsight, we've learned that the vaccinations, at least, you know, with, they may reduce symptoms, but they did nothing to prevent the spread of COVID-19, though we were told by many medical experts and politicians it would. The entire basis of locking unvaccinated people from business establishments, schools, social gatherings, and travel was on the false premise that vaccine prevents transmission. Another thing we know now, too, is while COVID-19 is a serious virus, it, prevents, it presents little serious risk to young, healthy people. Children are virtually immune to COVID-19, and adults rarely experience anything worse than flu-like symptoms from the virus uh, if they feel any symptoms whatsoever. Unless, of course, they had a few comorbidities, which includes advanced age. There was never a need to coerce young, healthy people into vaccinations and boosters, and there still isn't now. Unless you're in the business of selling vaccines, of course. This isn't opinion. This is just medical and statistical reality. When it was found that people weren't cooperating and getting boosters every six months, as they were told, the fear campaign was ramped up, though. We were told COVID-19 is always going to be with us, and if we don't all get boosters, hospitals will surely be overwhelmed, and the bodies will pile up in the seats as the virus would resurge. Well, the resurgence of COVID-19 never happened, and it won't. Vulnerable people have been vaccinated, probably a good idea. And despite the dire warnings from the experts, the unvaccinated haven't been decimated by the infection. 
I know most of us just want to leave the pandemic experience and misery in the rearview mirror. It dominated our lives for years and we just don't want to relive it. Like it or not, though, we can't let the doomsaying henny pennies off the hook for what they did to us all. These panic-pushing patsies haven't given up, and they'll come out of the woodwork to demand lockdowns and mandated masking at the first sign of an increase in COVID-19 levels or the emergence of any new virus. They thrive on fear, and authoritarians at all levels of government love to indulge those fears with legislation targeting the freedoms of citizens. The panic-porn pushers were dead wrong. We can't forget that, and we can't let our elected officials forget that. If we let the memory of how badly we were treated by a state in panic over a virus fade, we're inviting another similar event to happen. The government's changed the information it shares on the booster status of Canadians now, actually, to only include the last six months. Now, why is that? It's our information, isn't it? What purpose is being served in hiding uh, that information from our own citizens? The reason, of course, is they don't want to know they don't want us to know just how dismal their own numbers are. They don't want people to see just how few citizens are falling for the lifetime of boosters recommendation. Again, guys, 6%, that's nothing to brag about. If indeed those things were preventing things, we should be overrun by infections. With the information being limited in just the last six months, though, the picture's still pretty bleak, right? The number puts lie to the case of fear still being made is we're pushed to get an injection twice a year. If the boosters save lives, why is the lack of uptake, why isn't it killing us? COVID-19 is still around. The virus is endemic and it's still seriously harming vulnerable people with comorbidities. It's still infecting healthy people, though they often don't even feel the symptoms if it's uh, just a flu. If the motivation for pushing boosters on citizens isn't based on health though, must be financial. What better market could a drug manufacturer possibly hope for than a populace coerced by a government into taking your product? But the coercion is failing, and people aren't getting more jabs. That's great news. Don't think for a second, though, that those invested in pushing mass COVID-19 vaccinations have given up. They're lobbying governments, they're influencing the press, and they're just waiting for the next chance to try and whip up a profitable panic over a potential pandemic. We have to remain on guard. The pandemic experience and its associated lockdowns isn't finished. The last few years have just been the opening chapter of that book. So again, guys, hindsight's good for nothing if we don't make use of it. So let's not forget these things and let's keep watching those numbers. It's important. All right, that's what's got me going this morning. Uh, let's just keep watching those numbers and hope everybody stays safe. So, and let's check in with Dave Naylor and see what else is going on in the newsroom. Hello, hey, Corey. Good, uh, we're all very excited. Uh, Women's World Cup uh, kicks off tomorrow. You're probably excited too. Oh, uh, beside myself with uh, anticipation. Uh, Corey. Hey, I got a question for you. What would you do if I gave you $1 billion? Well, you wouldn't see me for a while. Uh, I'd probably do a, a great deal of traveling and a die of overindulgence from fat, rich foods. All right. Would you give me any? Eh, maybe. I'd toss a little bit around before I uh, fly the coop. All right. The reason I'm asking is it's our top story on the, the site right now for only the third time in history. The Powerball jackpot in the U.S. has uh, soared past the $1 billion mark. Uh, just, a, just a really, really stupid amount of money, uh, obviously. Uh, but, you know, it uh, gives people some nice things to dream about, about what they would do with, uh, with that sort of uh, lotto loot. Other stuff making the news this morning, Corey, the uh, uh, city of Toronto, you know, being overrun with crime and, and drug addicts. The, they, they've sort of set their goals on the lofty ambition to ban lawnmowers. 
Yep, that's right. They want to ban lawnmowers because they want to ban all two-stroke engines. So lawnmowers, uh, leaf blowers, uh, all those type of things uh, will, will be banned. But, you know, they're going to set up rental shops around the city where you can go and rent an electric uh, uh, lawnmower to, uh, to keep up with your, your yard maintenance. So another ludicrous idea of uh, the, uh, the center of the universe. Our Dave Makachuk's got an interesting column on sports salaries and uh, how the uh, obscene money that uh, today's athletes are getting paid. And uh, he's questioning whether it's uh, distorting our own values. Uh, our business reporter, Sean Polzer, has got an interesting story up on what's known as the Church of Bleach. This was uh, an organization uh, that was selling fake uh, beauty products uh, that basically contained bleach uh, that was being used as a, they were trying to sell it as a miracle COVID cure. So a Calgary guy's been arrested and charged uh, charged 12 grand. And uh, WestJet is eating a bit of uh, corporate egg today. Earlier this week, they, uh, they were advertising uh, really ridiculous cheap round trip flights, uh, round trip to uh, London or, or, or Dublin basically for 200 bucks. So of course people saw that and, and snapped it up. But WestJet says it was uh, the problem with the third party and they're not going to honor the uh, not going to honor the uh, the fares. So I'm sure they've upset a lot of uh, a lot of angry travelers there. And store uh, Corey, a great story I'm just about to put up. The government of Alberta, as you know, they auction off a lot of their surplus uh, goods, and they've now got a surplus human-sized donair suit that uh, that you can buy, Corey. Right now, the top bid is a thousand bucks. So you know, if you and Jane wanted to add some. Uh, uh, you know, some excitement to your uh, estate out in Pritis. I think a, a, a donair suit would be the way to do it. Well, we got an anniversary coming up. I'll have to keep that in mind. You know, I don't see how she could possibly resist me if I showed up uh, dressed in nothing but a donair suit. No, exactly. You'd be very tasty. <laughs> right on. Well, I'm glad to see our, our government is, is shedding itself of some of their uh, less needed possessions. I can't imagine what they were using it for in the first place, but uh, I'm sure the story will explain all. You bet. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. Lots on the go. Uh, I'll let you get back to rounding up your herd of reporters and keeping those stories coming. Yahoo. All right. That is Dave Naylor, our news editor in the newsroom. And as you can hear, stories on all sorts of things, from serious subjects to government auction Don air suits. We cover it all. The Western Standard, we blow the legacy media outlets out of the water. We're putting more stuff up there on our site every day. News stories, columns, of course, video and things such as that than anybody else. The reason we can do it is because you guys have been subscribing and we really appreciate it. That's how we can get past Bill C-18 and these government efforts to control us. Go direct to us. And those, many of you guys have. That's why we're still paying the bills today. So thank you very much for you guys who subscribed. And if you haven't subscribed yet, go to it. Come on, guys. WesternStandard.news slash membership. It's $9.99 a month. 100 bucks for a year if you take out a whole year. Cheaper than the old newspaper deliveries used to be. And then you don't have to hide from a paper boy at the end of the month to pay the bills. And yes, all sorts of stories. Even Arthur Green, as he says, no stories too small. We'll see his stories. Yeah, yeah, most of Arthur's stories are really good. But all the same. We can only pat ourselves in the back so much. But I just have to remind you guys, that's how we pay those bills. And hey, subscribe to the email list because we have been seeing the government, or not the government, it's because of the government. We've been seeing some throttling uh, on Meta and some areas now with people trying to search out news stories and they haven't necessarily been able to get them on the app they have. So 
you know, because of this idiocy from the federal government. You subscribe to our newsletters, things like that. You can be sure you will keep getting those stories no matter what sort of battles are going on between the government and uh, social media giants there. So let's see, you know, one of the things Dave brought up, I don't know if people saw it, but it was quite uh, hilarious. Uh, credit due to a, a cameraman with CTV. I hope he's still there. Uh, you might have seen the video going around. He Basically, somebody from Toronto uh, was from a transport, uh, transportation authority of some sort, but she was saying that they've got all these delayed flights under control and they fixed the issues and everything's great and everybody's happy. And she's doing this presser at an airport in Toronto. And... Um, and in the background, though, there's the flight schedule. You know, in an airport, you get the digital screen with all that. And the camera pans up. I think the cameraman said to himself, I'm just reading in, I can't stomach any more of this BS out of this woman because he raises the camera up and you see dozens and dozens of flights and they're all delayed and canceled all over the place. Just canceled, canceled, canceled. Oh, there we go. Yes, the standard cover. You see the camera scrolling up. And if that screen's a little too small, uh, you can see all the cancellations and delays sort of put lie to what this woman was trying to say. I, I am curious, though, like what on earth is going on with the airlines? I mean, I'm not a big fan of Air Canada. They're having huge problems, but it's all of them. They're all going through misery. I'm watching people, uh, all sorts of anecdotes, traveling through the States through different American airlines, WestJet here in Canada, Porter Airlines, you name it, constant delays, constant cancellations. Like there's something, and I don't know, I've seen all sorts of speculation, I've seen all sorts of excuses, I've seen things made, but something has just thrown a wrench into the entire air travel system in North America, and they can't seem to break themselves out of it. And it's miserable, you know, I'm, back when I used to, I, I can't imagine if I still used to, did what I used to have to do. Like my boss, back in the days when I used to fly around in the States troubleshooting, managing uh, oil exploration programs, he would buy me flights, and he would just go on to Expedia and pick the cheapest one, you know, sort by price, and that'd be my flight. Because he paid me a day rate. So it wouldn't matter how long it took me to get where I was going. He's going to pay me the same amount. So I'd get some flights. I'd have to go to Pittsburgh. It'd be like six different connections. They'd lose my luggage about a quarter of the time. He was pretty clear. He said, you, you want better uh, uh, service and everything? Don't worry, Corey. You can just buy your own flights. Well, of course, you know, okay, I'll put up with it. But boy, I would never have made those connections if the airline service was as unreliable and screwed up as it is today. Not a chance. Like I said, I had a lot of tough connections sprinting through airports all over North America over those years as it was. But at least back then, the majority of flights were on time and at least would fly. Like now they just keep canceling and they don't give explanations. I, you know, the, the air industry, I, for one thing though, okay, people get upset with them a lot because it's so no frills. We got to blame ourselves a little bit for that too. I mean, air travel is way cheaper now than we ever imagined in the past. I mean, Flights and everything used to be just for the very rich people in the past. And, and uh, you didn't casually do it. If you're gray in the muzzle like I am, you remember, you didn't just hop out for a, a weekend on a flight like we do nowadays. But the reason we get that is because you're in those cramped little seats and because you've got to pay for extra baggage and all you get is a lousy little bag of peanuts. But still, they can't reliably get you from place to place now. Then, well, you're starting to wonder whether it's worthwhile at all. I, I don't know. There's some sort of tipping point has hit with the airlines, and uh, we'll see what comes out of it. Okay, I see our guest in the lobby. I've been looking forward to this conversation. It's uh, John Desjardins. I could be messing that up. It's a French sort of name pronunciation, but I think that's correct. And uh, 
He's the executive director of the Indigenous Resource Network. And uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to, to talking to him about their campaign on resource development is reconciliation. It, it just sounds uh, quite contrary to a lot of campaigns we, we hear on these kinds of issues. So uh, thank you very much for, for joining us today, John. We really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure, Corey. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to be here and talk about what we're doing. Great. Yeah. And I mean, what caught my eye with that? And I mean, your site is fantastic. And we'll go into a little of that in a little mm -hmm. while too, just in general with the stories from people and things like that. But mm -hmm. just a positive uh, messaging outlook. It's just saying, you know what, <laughs> you know, don't listen to all the other things. If we want reconciliation, let's develop resources. Let's get people prosperous and, and uh, have them living happily in their communities out there. And it seems like it's simple common sense, but not enough people are saying that sort of thing. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why we stood up the network. But um, but yeah, like, you know, reconciliation, how do we achieve reconciliation? How do we look at resource development from an abundance mindset in terms of prosperity for all, you know, sharing in, in, in the risks, but also sharing in the resources uh, and the rewards, you know, from an equitable perspective and, and how that's facilitating, you know, community engagement and self-determination, um, you know, and so there's so many exciting things happening that are positive for all of Canada and Canadians and the industry. So we're really excited to, to talk about that and to, you know, further understand it, but also celebrate what's happening and, and why that's important for communities and Canada. Well, it's in, in a large number of Indigenous communities, of course, are in isolated areas relative to our, our population centres. And if it isn't resource development to help them become independent, there, there isn't necessarily a lot there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I mean, it, it runs contrary to some people make it sound as if the discussion too, that as if everybody in the indigenous community is all on the same page. I mean, there's multiple points of view on, on how much development should happen or who and where and, mm -hmm. and you should be allowed to have that open discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and we built the network off a poll that found that, you know, predominantly indigenous people and communities are in favor of, of resource development. And, and some of the consistencies are, you know, in favor of good, um, meaningful development, sustainable development, which aligns with the goals of Canada, uh, our government and industry. And, um, you know, there's there's incredible sentiment there in terms of let's let's do this. Let's do this together and, and share in that prosperity. Yeah, well, and, and nobody's got a, a better interest in sustainable and responsible development than the people who live in the area. I mean, you could support the development of a pipeline because if you're there to watch, you make sure that you minimize impact. You're not going to go out there and make more of a mess than you have to. Mm -hmm. uh, again, but we're not hearing that messaging a lot from the communities. They seem to focus on the activists who oppose, unfortunately, in the media rather than, than the people who are interested in, in developing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, again, none of the one of the reasons we think we're um, important to this conversation is to, um, you know, I think challenge that that sensationalization of indigenous sentiment in resource development and and you know and and activism and and has really certainly, um, you know, I think been the predominant voice. Um, but we're, you know, we and, and so many other groups and communities are here to say that it's not the representative voice. It's, it doesn't represent the majority and doesn't represent by and far largely the sentiment in terms of being involved in developing, moving the development forward. And in line with what you just said, absolutely, Indigenous people um, are here to um, influence and assert through ownership, you know, greater sustainability in terms of design, in terms of construction, in terms of operation, um, because you're absolutely right. You know, communities bear considerable environmental risk with resource development, understand that. And the conversation changes when we're in a position to be able to influence, 
you know, the development in a way that ensures the protection of that, that, that environment and, and the culture and ceremony that, that surrounds um, the development in the land and the land use. Yeah. And um, something that's changed, I think, as well, has been some of the attitudes from industry and perhaps it's from like proactive uh, business people like yourself speaking out. I was in the oil industry way back you know, 30 years ago and such, and we'd work in areas with indigenous communities. But to be honest, usually at best, OK, well, we'll cut a check to the local community or something like that, or maybe hire a few folks and then we'll move mm -hmm. on. But now companies are often seeking actual partnerships, not tokenism. They, they, they mm -hmm. want participation with the, the local community so that there's an investment and it's longer term and, and that can certainly have a lot more positive uh, longer term outcomes then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely it does. And so, you know, historically communities were seen as as maybe even potentially risk or stakeholders as part of the process, as part of the development process. But the sentiment is changing and changing at a rate that is uh, exciting, especially over the last, you know, five, 10 years. Yes, jurisprudence says that, you know, Indigenous people have more, you know, uh, rights and, and more um, obligation for consultation. But industry is even moving past that and saying, no, it's just really good business to partner to work with communities on a on a meaningful equitable level in terms of understanding and sharing some of the challenges the risks the financing um, but even the partnerships if that's not possible looking for sustainable development as opposed to just managing communities and their expectations but looking for what are the outcomes how do we ensure that you know even ultimately the lives of indigenous people are better once this development moves on that they've built enough capacity sustainable development that they can diversify and into different economies and and industries are asking those questions you know government are asking those things and and starting to develop policies and procurement and and relationships where that's an accountability and a deliverable and it's it's exciting how that's changing and you know we a lot of people involved in the industry think we don't talk about that enough. We don't celebrate that. We don't reward um, that type of sentiment and attitude because that's the, the, the sentiment and attitude that builds partnership and relationship that ensures there's a lasting and, and a deep impact to these relationships and partnerships. Well, yeah, and having skilled participants, I mean, it's an asset in any industry. And if they're close to where you're working, you can't beat that. I mean, even just on a dollars and cents business case, it mm -hmm. makes sense to train up people and get them invested and in, in wanting to be a part of the project. And you have a great local resource of people to, to help with those things. It's unfortunate. Like I worked in the Arctic for a number of years uh, back when it was thought that the, the McKenzie Valley pipeline was still going to happen. And, and there was a lot of investment, though, up there in the, in the college up that way and training people from everything from production accounting to welding, you know, in anticipation. And that mm -hmm. didn't happen. But those are still skills that the industry brought to people up there that they wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. And, and it, as you said, they could diversify some of those skills they could take out into other industries, even if the pipeline didn't make it. And, mm -hmm. and the, you know, I imagine these sorts of developments in other communities can lead to that sort of broadening, I guess, of, of enterprise and skills. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's it's really exciting to be part of conversations where industry is, is kind of moving past just the business need, the project need, and, and realizing, yes, there's a, a considerable value in investing in these skills, in the education, life skills, um, you know, and, and achieving, um, you know, measures or means of socioeconomic reconciliation. So getting people much more engaged in terms of their opportunities, diversifying skill sets so they can do all sorts of things. And, and these investments are happening and, and industry is, is far less 
um, I think, you know, I don't know if it's disappointed, but they're, they're, they're far less understanding that, yes, this is, this is how you do business. Um, we're going to train, train people from a, I think from a, a more altruistic perspective in terms of its, its greater impact to economy and industry. And, and, but ultimately if you serves the business needs, that's, that's wonderful as well too. And there's people that can do these things and they can transfer those skills to other areas, other resource development, other, other economies, uh, administration, leadership, all those, those skills, um, certainly transcend specific industries and, and they're certainly applicable. And so, uh, yeah, it's really exciting what's happening. Yeah. And, and your group is giving a, a platform to, you know, different engaged voices throughout the, the community in general to, to give that different perspective. I, I see a, a piece by Chief Crystal Smith on, uh, you know, saying First Nations want an energy future, not eco-colonialism. You know, a bit of a loaded title, but well, mm-hmm. we see the, the colonialism word thrown out in opposition to development all the time. And then this is kind of turning it around. Well, hang on, you know, you, you foreign uh, anti-industry groups aren't necessarily looking out for the local people's interest as well. It's sort of a different sort of patronizing colonialism going on out there. Absolutely. Like, and she's an excellent example and um, a wonderful champion for, you know, describing, you know, yes, maybe there's some aspects of, 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 of um, interest that align, but it's typically just the frustration. Um, it doesn't align with the, with the goals of the community 100%. Goals want to participate. They want to develop. They want to self-determine. They want to be autonomous. And, you know, this type of activism doesn't align with that. It doesn't, it doesn't contemplate what if, how, what does moving forward look like? And uh, what does it moving forward look like with communities, which I think by and far are the goals of community, um, you know, to be able to make the decisions, resource development, yes or no, and to be empowered to do so. And she is an incredible spokesperson for that and and its impact on our community and making those decisions and so um yeah that's that's changing it needs to change it needs to change even further as we build out communities their sovereignty their independence their autonomy they're you know incredible economic developers and and they want to do that and they want to develop um on you know our terms and in true spirit of partnership and yeah, and, and more of that needs to happen. We need to talk about the things that where it's happening and, and create a new standard in terms of what the international community or even just national communities sees as indigenous sentiment and, and practicality and pragmatism in resource development. Yeah, so uh, with your organization, I mean, you're bringing light to a lot of issues. You're giving a platform, as I said. Uh, I see other categories. You've got uh, research available and, and other uh, things such as that that you guys have been taking part in? Absolutely. Yes, we want to, you know, as opposed to, we don't want to be an organization that pounds tables or talk about reparations or anything like that. We want to talk about um, and then use the research to support that. So we built it off that through surveys and through understanding data, through economic impact, um, you know, different, um, you know, different policies and legislation. So we want to look at those and say, okay, what's, you know, what's the true impact, economic impact, if we go this way in terms of regulatory, in terms of undrip, in terms of, you know, emissions intensity, cash production, um, you know, understand those things um, and in research to do that. And so, yeah, we um, certainly have the capacity, want to want to use that data and then understand and make informed choices um, in terms of development and and the policies that uh, either support or constrain uh, development. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about oil and gas and LNG, but I, I know as well, you, you talk about other resource industries, mm-hmm. forestry and mining, which again are, are very large industries that 
can have some, some serious impacts if done incorrectly, but can mm-hmm. have some, some serious benefits if, if uh, uh, partnered correctly. So, I mean, you know, those kind of get lost in the mix sometimes, but th- mm-hmm. there's a lot of potential for communities in both of those industries. Oh, absolutely. And in addition, like we talk about fisheries as well, too, and supporting some of the West Coast, um, you know, Indigenous communities and their fishery initiatives and, and fish farming and stuff like that. And, you know, there's certain policy and, and permitting and regulatory issues and, and hoping for reform that understands those you know, if we were to transition or if there's issues of sustainability, let's understand the economic impact aspect of those. Um, you know, similar with with mining and, and um, forestry, you know, what does is, what is Indigenous stewardship and participation and sustainability look like? Um, you know, and, and, and there's certainly a lot of um, synergy in terms of participation and sentiment in the different industries. And yeah, we're talking much more and more and more about uh, the different aspects in those industry, right? And so, you know, the, the life cycle of a mining um, project and development and operations and reclamation and what's the great examples in there and the worker participation and business participation in there, similar with, with forestry, what is sustainability and stewardship uh, from an indigenous perspective, land rights and, and forest management practices and yeah, we're diving into all the sectors to really understand, um, you know, what really working. Let's celebrate and talk that and share that across all the industries. And then what's not working? We work practically, you know, with government and industry. Um, you know, again, we're not we're, we're nonpartisan. We don't, want, don't really want to be political. We want to be uh, advocates, but act, act, act advocates with experience, lived experience, and, and substance through the research and so, and to inform conversations, uh, good conversation, meaningful conversations. Well, excellent. Uh, your your site's a great resource, and I really like that positive messaging you guys mm-hmm. are doing. And mm-hmm. uh, again, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about it. So where can people find more information about what you, you've been doing and uh, if they wanted to take part or just research some things or, mm-hmm. or reach out to you? Absolutely. Our, re- our, our, our newly launched website is, is a great resource. And what we're looking for people to sign up as members and, you know, we, we represent Indigenous workers in business. Absolutely. Please sign up as such so we can understand, you know, the impacts and your needs more. Um, but even non-Indigenous and just the general community to support what we're doing and how we're doing. And, uh, you know, we have we're active on all social media streams, quite active in, in, in LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, even Instagram. And so, uh, follow uh, the activities, like and share if you see it. We're finding m- more people are much more comfortable as they, as they start to see our messaging. It's it's positive. It's objective. Uh, we don't like to polarize. We don't want to start fights. You know, we don't want to do that. We want to be very practical in application and 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 do it in a good, meaningful way. And so, yeah, direct them to the re- to the network, direct them to the website. Um, please sign up, um, and then you know, so we can understand um, all these aspects even further and then kind of build that following and then follow our social media channels. Excellent. Well, thank you one more time for joining us then, John, and uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. We'll talk about some of those partnerships and successes. Absolutely. My pleasure, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was John Digilazy, Executive Director of the Indigenous Resource Network. Yeah, that was a great chat. And like I said, you know, just talking about things positively, there are different points of view. And I, I like how he's staying out of the partisanship. Hey, I'm as partisan as they get. You know, I make my noise. I make my racket. That's my job. But if you're looking to develop, stay out of the partisan mire. That's a whole different uh, ballpark. And, and you keep your your eye on the prize and uh, something, uh, you know, the, the comments have gone by a lot of them and somebody talking about how, uh, the, the partnerships, there we are, collaborations improved over the years. Uh, it's not new, 
maybe it wasn't as good yet, but you know, that's, I mean, it's evolving. And that's why I mentioned, you know, 30 years ago when unfortunately really what the partnerships meant was not, was the, the word partnership wasn't even used. It was tokenism. You just cut a check to somebody and work in the area and then take off. And then later it got a little better where you'd hire some folks, you'd bring them in on the project. You have monitors you have, but, but again, it's more with the view of we're going to be here, we're going to do this. And then we're just going to leave. The vision now, what I'm getting, what I'm seeing is fully invested, looking at the long term, having these, these indigenous businesses blossoming and staying in the area, diversifying. And that's a whole, you know, that's in investing the citizens in the area into the project itself. And I, I can't think of a, a better way to invest if you want to get these done. Look how hard it is getting major projects done right now. And these eco-activists who pretend to speak for everybody in these areas, and we know they don't always do that. And uh, if you've got local people invested in those projects, maybe they'll go out to the blockade and speak to some of the eco-activists and make them realize, guys, you're, you're blocking our economic development. This isn't working for us. And, you know, some of the other uh, patronizing talk, we see it out of Hollywood. We see it out of some of these celebrities, again, opposing things like the, the coastal gas link pipeline and, and uh, you know, initiatives such as that. And they speak as if they're speaking on behalf of the indigenous communities. I'm sure they represent the view of some of them. But again, it, that's what must be so frustrating and insulting is people talking as if everybody holds the same view in these communities. No, not, not at all. There's a diversity of view just like anywhere else. And... Uh, so this group's are, you know, representing a, an ambitious, proactive, and, and positive. As I said, I'm always cranky and negative. Let's have something positive on, and, and that's what these guys are offering. So check them out, indigenousresourcenetwork.ca. There's a lot there, guys, and, and a lot to cover. All right, so let's talk about proactive. You know, something that, uh, you know, I'm going to turn the page a little. I'm going to talk about what Dave brought up with the Toronto banning two-stroke engines, lawnmowers, uh, who knows what else, weed whackers, I imagine, chainsaws. I couldn't imagine working in the bush with a, an electric chainsaw. I don't think that's going to be that great. But I want to talk about proactive. Uh, I've got a beat-up old lawnmower home. i got an acreage. Okay, a plug-in electric mower, yeah, it's just not going to happen on my place. Uh, I need. Uh, I, I like the push-behind mower because i got a lot of rolling little spots to get into, and a ride-on mower would be difficult uh, and next to useless for me, and then I can use the exercise. But when that old thing dies, I'm probably going to buy one of those rechargeable electric lawnmowers. Not because... The government's mandating it for me, though, and not because, uh, you know, they're going to ban my type of lawnmower in my area. I'm in an acreage. We're not there yet. But it's because it looks practical, and the prices have gotten reasonable, and the charge times of these things has gotten to the point where, you know what, I think that'll work for me. But that's the only way to change people's behaviors, not through banning the use of things. You've got to come up with a product that's better than the last one first then people will switch. The same with the leaf blowers. I've got a, yeah, I've got one of those leaf blowers. And some of the baloney that's come from the environmentalists uh, when it came to that, there was some crap and they published that crap. And I called them out. Not enough people did, but some did where they said, I believe it was like one tank from a gas leaf blower gives the equivalent of greenhouse gases out of a Ford F-150 driving from California to Alaska. Where do you guys come up with that garbage? What, two liters of fuel somehow makes as much emissions as a pickup truck that would have burned hundreds and hundreds of them going all the way to Alaska. That's ridiculous. It's obscene, but that's the crap these guys put out there. Leaf blowers are loud. They're dusty. They make a, a mess. But they're, they're, they've got a use. they got a use for landscapers. they got some people clear snow with them, things like that. Once the electric ones get better, companies and individuals will switch. Just leave it alone. 
Don't ban them. Don't make the ones they have already useless, you know, and illegal. Boy, contraband leaf blowers. What a world we're getting into. But uh, that's what we're at. So Toronto's just, no, we're going to move. We're going to ban these things because Toronto's not crappy enough, right? You know, let them have them. Uh, I mean, they've got, uh, you know, Olivia Chow is their mayor now, and Justin Trudeau's been doing little cartwheels. He's really happy about working together on her, uh, with her uh, on uh, turning Toronto into the woke paradise he envisions. You know, maybe it's just time to accelerate the deterioration. Let's stop trying to put the fires out and uh, start to maybe adding a little more fuel to them then. And maybe that's what it's got to take. we got to bottom out. It's got to get worse before it can get better. You know, speak, look at this crap. Here's one of the stories out. You know, the budget officer, and it doesn't seem to matter with the budget officer. This is a, uh, and a credit where due in this office. The budget officer seems to be, parliamentary budget officers being pretty independent and runs scathing reports on the government because, of course, the government's budget and uh, finances are just a catastrophe. But looking in this, wants the fine print on the subsidies given to Volkswagen and Stellantis for these battery factories. And that was a story in the Standard recently, too, that the, the, the cost, that the subsidies that are going into these battery factories are going to be more than the entire auto manufacturing sector in Canada generates in a year. That's just the subsidies for these batteries. It's insane. And uh, the parliamentary budget officer saying, I require this information and I'm entitled to free and timely access. So it sounds like it's already getting difficulty getting the information. The government's already covering up their own crap. Of course, once they threw those subsidies into it, they, 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 the price went up just almost immediately afterwards. They blew their budget before the budget got out of the gates. So, yeah, we've we got a boondoggle of epic proportions that's going to come from these battery factories. I promise you that. It's going to be a disaster. Again, if it's feasible, it will come. Battery technology has gotten a lot better. That's why we got those battery-powered bikes, you know, battery assist that people take around. And you've even got stubborn guys like me saying he's going to get a battery lawnmower when his gas one gives out. But you got to give it time. You can't force it. And that's what the government's trying to do under Trudeau and his insane obsession with climate change is trying to do with this battery crap. It's going to be just a money poured into a black hole. And I assure you, within 10 years, these things are going to be closed. And as E Sharp, one of the commenters saying that these battery plants won't produce the jobs that the government says it will either. No, it won't. And uh, somebody calculated out, I think it was the Taxpayers Federation or something like that, but the, the jobs are going to work out to something like $5 million a job. <laughs> Come on, you guys. If the goal is job creation, that's a really terrible Terrible number on doing it. Uh, let's talk about some more government idiocy. There's never a short supply for me to go on. Uh, yes, this is, and this isn't surprising because I've pointed this out online a lot because I like rubbing their noses in it a bit. The government looks like they're going to censor uh, Tommy Douglas. Yes, they've noticed. They've noticed. This has always been there. It's always been in the wide open, but the left likes to quietly not talk about it. Yes, he's the NDP founder. I mean, it was the CCF when he founded it, but it was that that's that Prairie Socialist Party. He was a Saskatchewan premier, but he also was a strong supporter of eugenics. And yes, that's the policy of sterilizing what people would see as the undesirables and such. And Tommy Douglas talked about uh, how uh, we should uh, sterilize people with a low mental rating and, uh, you know, moral standards below normal who were delinquent. He was talking about even, yeah, uh, he, he talked about unwed mothers uh, being, you know, how they're so 
subject to uh, social disease and to uh, refer to them as if being prostitutes. Now, those are views he held in the 30s, and those were the views of the times. But the cancel crowd doesn't care. But now they're starting to cancel their own. Now they're starting to get after their own. Tommy Douglas, St. Tommy Douglas. He's the man that the CBC said was the greatest Canadian of all time, if you remember that, that game show crap they did some years ago on our dime. Well, it sounds like they're going to cancel him because in the 30s he held some uh, pretty gnarly views that, uh, well, aren't acceptable today. Maybe when they cancel enough of their own, tear down enough of their own statues, rename enough schools and streets... I know I'm dreaming, but I like to think maybe they'll realize just how damn stupid they are. Probably not, though. Probably not. We'll just keep erasing history, keep pretending that uh, everybody is evil, everybody's nasty, and uh, just shutting down everything when we can. Uh, let's see the, yeah, it was mentioned earlier, David, the, the port worker strike, it's on again. Uh, speaking of unions, speaking of dollars, this is bad, guys. It's going on for weeks. Now, the West Coast port is huge, and it's responsible for a whole lot of our goods coming in here. we got to get all our cheap Chinese-made Walmart stuff and dollar store products from somewhere, and they come from that port in Vancouver. People complain about, you know, here's one of the areas where it gets complicated. A lot of people say, we got to stop trade with China, but they're the same people who complain about the price of everything's going up. We do have a complicated, difficult thing to deal with here. Because, yes, we could get out of it, but, uh, you know, the mom and pop uh, manufacturers and stores on the corners aren't going to be able to give you those sorts of consumer products that the Chinese manufacturers do. And we're going to get a bit of a taste of that while all of these products get bound up on the West Coast port right now. But we got to start rethinking what these ports are. Canada, I believe there was a listing of like hundreds and hundreds of ports around the world, and the West Coast port in Vancouver was like the second to last inefficiency. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's slow. It's expensive. And of course, everything that goes through there with it being inefficient adds to the cost of your consumer product down the line. And what's part of the problem? It's the bloody union. It's outright the union, guys. And that this union of longshoremen, I always liked those cool little blue beanies they'd wear traditionally. I used to wear those in the oil field. But aside from that, they're good for nothing. Guys, they're forklift operators. They're warehouse managers. And they're making 130000 a year on average each. And they've got the gall to strike. And then when a settlement was actually reached, the union bypassed its own members and said, no, that's not good enough. Go back out onto the picket line. You see, it's not just the dollar and cents they're protesting against. That's not just what they're striking against. They're striking against automation. Yeah, think about that. This is like the old uh, milkman uh, who used to have the horse and wagon delivering your milk, trying to ban the, the advent of gasoline vehicles coming and putting them out of business. It doesn't work. You can't fight automation, advancement, and development forever. And it's going to cost the whole country, not just in this strike but in their managing to hinder the natural evolution of that port, keep that port down in the bottom two or three in efficiency around the world. And as they do that, we will pay a premium on everything we bring into this country or everything we export. Can't forget that either. There's a lot of products trying to get out and they're getting backed up. And that harms the industries that are trying to export. This is serious, serious stuff. It sounds like even the liberals, even the liberals realize this. Good old Seamus O'Regan, not our brightest star on Parliament Hill there, but he's talking tough because they realize we've got to get this going. And that's going to be interesting too. So Jagmeet Singh, of course, he's been in bed with the Trudeau government for quite some time now, shoring him up, holding him up, keeping them in their position. 
But he's also, of course, very heavily funded and tied with organized labor. Now, if Trudeau brings in, and I suspect he's going to, they have to. The economic cost is too high. The impasse has gone on too long. They're going to legislate these guys back to work. They're going to say that's enough. Uh, Reagan already said it's an illegal strike. But what's old Jaggy going to do? What are you going to do, Jagmeet? He's just getting weaker and weaker every time he, he props up the Trudeau government. It's similar to what the, the Chinese interference issue and everything. Singh will stand there and talk about how bad it is and how bad those Trudeaus have been. Or those, those liberals and the Trudeaus. Uh, but he won't do anything about it. He's the linchpin, guys. He's the one holding them up. That government can be taken down or at least taken to task any time. If Jagmeet Singh could find his courage, find his principles, and actually be a leader for the first time in his life. But it, we'll see if this is going to be enough. When the government turns on your precious organized labor, when the government you're shoring up, when the man who's the prime minister who you cuddle to sleep every night is forcing those workers back onto the docks, are you still going to support them, Mr. Singh? Are you still going to get behind them? I got a feeling those union dollar donations might start drying up a little, might they? But I mean, this is going to cost, I mean, who knows what the numbers, but they're talking about some of the backlog building up on the West Coast now, taking into October to get out to us. And we've got these discussions. Everybody's worked up about cost of living. I mean, they're celebrating, hey, look, we've hiked interest rates enough and we've pounded the economy hard enough that inflation slowed down. Good. On everything. Except food. Food's still shooting through the roof. Well, again, that ties into a whole lot of things, and supply chains are part of them. Unions are a part of it, getting it to the port. Or, of course, uh, uh, I won't go down that rabbit hole today, but supply management, one of my favorite things I like to beat on, is costing you all. Is the government ever seriously going to take on our cost of living problems? Are they ever really going to worry about the price of our foods? I don't know. You know, Justin Trudeau, I mean, how far the supply chain to him is walking into the kitchen at night and pouring his own bowl of cereal once rather than having the chef do it because they're in bed already. He doesn't understand what the challenges are for people on a budget. And he doesn't understand how the food gets from the farm to his table after his chef has prepared it for him. So, yeah, I don't hold a hell of a lot of hope that he's going to make it better anytime in the near future. All right, let's talk about somebody who does know about supply chains and uh, does know about how the food comes from the farms and gets on your table. And that is Jim Buzikum of uh, the Marketplace there. He's going to tell us about what's going on out there. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Hey, good, Corey. How are you doing? Very good. Uh, glad to, to have you in today. I just wanted to uh, get a rant out of my system on some of these things, but uh, uh, that's just more on the consumer level. You represent the producer yeah. level, and uh, there's there's quite a bit going on out there. Yeah, I could join on that rant. Um, you were talking about the port closures and uh, the strikes, and yeah, it's a big deal on the consumer goods that you buy in from China and so on, but big deal on exports. I mean, look at our country, 35 million people. Look at all the resources that we're trying to export. I'm in the egg sector and there's product going out daily and it's backing up. It's not, it's not just a matter of, first of all, it's not open, but it's not a matter of just being open and just everyone's back to normal again. We got to catch up. We need to meet our uh, contract requirements, our sales requirements to foreign buyers and, it's a mess right now. Um, on top of everything else that's happened over the last few years, we now are dealing with that as well. So I understand what you're talking about there just okay. all too well. 
Well, it's it's well, it's it's large commodities and, and volumes of it that need to move, and the ports are pretty uh, essential to it. Um, yeah. Getting to that world market aspect, things kind of beyond our local control, though. But I mean, they they're really impacting commodity prices. Uh, the Russia Ukraine uh, agreements right now are having an impact. Yeah. So Russia definitely is making sure that grain corridor is not open, as I'm sure that, uh, your listeners are aware of that. Um, Odessa port was uh, bombed yesterday, last night, and damage to a number of grain terminals there. So there's certainly product not going to go out of that port. Um, now, albeit there is product moving inland. Um, it's a bit of a farce to think that Ukraine is just exporting to starving countries, quote-unquote starving countries. Most of their grain is going to the best buyer that they can find, not unlike anyone else, for that matter. And that goes into Western Europe quite easily. They have a lot of land border with Western Europe, so there's a lot of product going that way. Um, yeah, so it, it's possible that some other countries do have to turn to Canada or United States or other exporting countries to, to buy some of their products. We haven't really seen it in a big way yet. The Canadian prices are just, in fact, much too high. Um, we've been struggling with consecutive droughts in Western Canada. We have high price expectations at the farm gate. I guess the farmers do. I guess that's what I mean with that. And um, so we're not all that competitive into some of those markets that maybe the Black Sea region would normally go to. But it could come if the war intensifies and more damages are done. So we'll have to see. Um, and, and then maybe I'll, I'll just carry right into the drought situation in Western Canada. It, um, it's again, um, it, it, it's a severe drought across Alberta and Saskatchewan. There's areas that have received some pretty good rain. So we're going to for sure have some production, but it's probably 70, 80% of normal, which, you know, maybe sounds pretty good yet. You'll still have quite a bit of grain, but 20% less of some of these commodities. And you're also talking about high cost of food. This is not going to help bring down the cost of food to consumers. Um, we're looking at tighter supplies again for another year in Canada. Uh, pretty healthy export market if this port ever gets figured out, and it will. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, price expectations are high at the farm gate. So I'm sure food prices will stay high as well. Well, that's it. I mean, I guess it's kind of the only consolation for a producer is a high price for the commodity they're producing, even if, if the drought's been limiting their, their yield, but it's it's still that, that transfers down to a tougher time for the consumer in the end. Yeah, exactly. So, excellent. So, I'll, I'll leave that with you, Corey. Okay, I'll leave you back to watching those those numbers and, and seeing what's coming. It's, it's frustrating with the things that are beyond our control, but we do everything we can. All right, take care. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. So, yeah, Bye. that was... Jim Buzikum of uh, Marketplace Commodities, guys, and that's his job. He looks at those things. He looks at those trends. If you're a producer, you're in that industry, you're in that business. Those are the guys to speak to, to try and maximize your business like any other one. Uh, Marketplace Commodities, they, they know their stuff, and they can always give you a good rundown on what's happening. I mean, it is such a complicated field in general, right? Like, as I was talking about, supply chains, there's more to it than just uh, what's produced here and sold locally. I mean, you've got different markets, different demand. What are you trying to get out to in different areas, things like that? And, uh, again, it's a big part of our economy in general in Canada. And it's, it's looking 
kind of scary in some ways. You know, we've got a, a lot going on out there. Uh, Nigel Hannaford, our, our opinion editor, wrote a fantastic piece just recently, again, on food prices. And uh, he talked a little bit, too, about people with, you know, we're kind of spoiled over here, guys. And, and that's what this, this, this port shutdown is going to let us know a little about too. You know, where do you think you're getting those tulips in summer or in spring from? Well, they're getting shipped fast from Amsterdam, guys. Uh, it's coming over here from those areas. And, uh, you know, where are you getting those avocados in January? Well, those are coming up from Mexico. And uh, if you really are an environmentalist, you might want to start looking at eating a little more locally. But that doesn't seem to have stopped uh, the, the left when they want their avocado toast. But when the price of the avocado quadruples, then they start to reevaluate where their source of food's coming from. Then that reality check sort of starts to land home and uh, people start to thinking about these things. And we've got a lot to think about, guys. Uh, I'll finish with the other because it's going to tie into next week. I, I believe I've got uh, Shane Winslow on. He's with Shane Holmes. He's a home builder. And we've got immigration targets. This discussion's happened a lot. The government wants to bring in 500,000 immigrants a year. Now, what we've got going on right now is a pyramid scheme, kind of. We've got people aging or demanding more and more from the system, pensions, health care, all of these things. Meanwhile, the, the younger demographic is getting smaller as, as a percentage goes. So the way the government's been filling that is bringing in loads and loads of immigrants to work and keep contributing into the system to keep that pyramid growing. And I mean, it's good. We need it. We've got a labor shortage. There's a fantastic skilled immigrants coming from all over. It's good for our economy. It's good for all of us. But, but we have to have somewhere to put them when they get here. Our housing is not nearly keeping up with the targets on how many people they want to bring in. This is just math. It isn't opinion on whether having more immigrants or less is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just saying they need somewhere to live. We're a winter country. What do you expect these people to do when they get here? So I'm going to talk to Shane Wenzel because part of the problem is our governments are in the way and they slow and they hinder and they regulate to death the development and construction of new homes. If we're going to build new homes fast and safely and affordably, we really have to reevaluate all of the handicaps we've been putting on developers and builders in building those places. So I'm looking forward to that discussion because we need to apply a little common sense because we, we do need to keep bringing people in, but we also need to make sure that we can house people and plus the people living here right now with the cost of living and rents and homes is way through the roof and the only way to solve that is increasing supply again that's just math all right that's all i got this week uh thanks for tuning in guys uh i think that was a good show it was really good talking to a couple of those uh, folks on those things so come in next week at this time we'll have a lot more to cover and uh yeah i appreciate you tuning in i'll see you next week the current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley is steady at 4.35. Feed wheat is also steady at 4.20, and corn is up $5 at $401 per ton. In the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures jumped 59 cents at 7.30, with local hardbread spring bid for July movement at $10.50 per bushel. In the oil seeds nearby canola futures increased $18 at $851.40 per ton with delivered values for August movement at $19.53 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at $0.34 cents per pound, and yellow peas remain at $11.50 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle are lower $0.57.5 cents at $180.70 per hundredweight. I'm David Lee at Marketplace Commodities. 
accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.